Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor of Foreign in London. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 16th of February. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, each Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Over the past two weeks, four mysterious objects have been shot down from the skies over the US and Canada. As American authorities search for answers, a diplomatic rift between the US and China is growing. We were able to determine that China has a high-altitude balloon program for intelligence collection that's connected to the People's Liberation Army. It was operating during the previous administration, but they did not detect it. We detected it. We tracked it. And we have been carefully studying it to learn as much as we can. We discuss what's behind the spike in mysterious objects being spotted and where U.S.-China relations can go from here. Then we discuss the ongoing crisis in Turkey and Syria following a devastating earthquake on the 6th of February. Uh, I think it's really difficult to, to, to estimate uh, obviously very precisely, because we, you need to get under the rubble. As the death toll surpasses 40,000, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan are both grappling with the political fallout of the catastrophe. We also take a listener's question on Russia's future. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. On the 4th of February, the US Air Force shot down a Chinese spy balloon after it spent several days drifting across the continent. The incident immediately opened up a rift in U.S.-China diplomacy as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken cancelled his imminent visit to Beijing. The situation has only devolved since. Over the course of three days last weekend, three different mysterious objects were shot down over the skies of North America. One over Alaska, one over Canada's Yukon Territory, and one over Lake Huron in Michigan. So Katie, I obviously wanted to begin with you here. To start off, what is going on with these three unidentified objects that have been spotted and shot down over the last weekend? That is indeed the question that everybody is asking here in the United States. What is going on? It has been quite the weekend here. Just to back up and 
take listeners through the sequence of events in some detail that you mentioned there. This really began at the end of January. We now know that this suspected Chinese surveillance balloon was picked up entering US airspace on the 28th of January. It traveled briefly over Canada and then back into the US over sensitive sites in Montana before it was shot down, of course, live on television on the 4th of February. We have a lot more information now about that balloon. For a start, the sheer scale of it, it was around 200 feet tall. Edo has asked me to translate that into metrics, so that's approximately 60 metres, with a payload around the size of a regional jet, or the unit of measurement that is being used here is two to three school buses with the entire aircraft, around a couple of thousand pounds, or for Edo, 900 kilos approximately. And the kind of sensors and equipment that they've been able to recover from it leads them to believe this This also had the capacity to be gathering what's known as signals intelligence, so communications data. So they are very confident that is what they have recovered in this first incident. Then on Friday, we got the news that the US was tracking another high altitude object over Alaska that was shot down and no sooner had that happened and crews had been dispatched to recover it, which was over over sea ice and in very challenging conditions, um, we got the word that another object had been sighted over northern Canada, which was duly shot down on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we got the news that another, this is now the fourth object, as it was being described, had been tracked and shot down over Lake Huron near Michigan. The first two of those latest incidents, Chuck Schumer has said they believe they were balloons. More detail than that, they don't have. There were vague descriptions of them being silverish and possibly cylindrical, but none of the debris has been recovered so far. In the third case, they're describing the object as octagonal with strings, and they believe that they picked that up the day before on radar over Montana, close to some sensitive military sites. Um, So further information than that, we do not have. That is partly because of the locations where these objects have been shot down. These are very remote areas, very challenging conditions. So the latest information as of Wednesday is that none of the debris has as yet been recovered. So there is no evidence, perhaps inevitably, that this is linked to the first case. There is also no evidence, and it sounds ridiculous, but this is genuinely part of the conversation here. The White House had to issue a denial on Monday that there was any evidence that this was alien or extraterrestrial activity. So one of the possible answers for why we're now seeing so many objects shot down is that after that first suspected Chinese spy balloon, NORAD adjusted its sensors. So it effectively opened up the parameters of the radars and the sensors that are looking at the airspace over North America, which had previously been focused much more so on fast moving objects like missiles and aircraft, the sort of things that you would want to be tracking to be able to look at these much more slower moving and higher altitude objects. So they are actively looking for exactly this sort of thing. And that might explain why they are now finding them and We just don't know at this point. Is there a perfectly innocuous, benign explanation? Could these be research projects? Could these be from a company? Could these be from an adversarial state? So we just don't know. And inevitably, that lack of information is fueling what was already, frankly, a pretty febrile atmosphere here in Washington. Yeah. So uh, obviously, there's a ton that we don't know. And it makes sense why a lot of people would be jumping to conclusions based on the rash of spottings we've seen. But 
to emphasize that we don't know what the latter three are from, but we do know and believe that the first one was a Chinese spy balloon. So I wanted to ask you, what is the state of US-China relations at the moment and where does it seem to be heading? Yeah, I do wonder when we come to to look back at the history of US-China relations in the years and decades to come, if this will be one of these just extraordinarily bad coincidences of timing, which could have real long-term implications. Um, To back up for a second, US-China relations have been pretty rapidly deteriorating. Um, I think the apogee was last August after then-Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan and China then carried out live fire exercises right around the island. We saw efforts in November when the US President Joe Biden met with the Chinese leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali and talked about wanting to stabilize relations between them. So as part of that, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken was due to travel to Beijing for a meeting with Xi that was being described here as this effort to sort of put a floor beneath the relationship, build strategic guardrails, whichever analogy you prefer. But that was intended to be the exact weekend that this balloon was shot down. So Blinken's visit has been indefinitely postponed. The difficulty is that it's very hard to see how it can now go ahead, given the political atmosphere. So both sides have effectively reverted to form. On the Chinese side, At first, there was a very uncharacteristically conciliatory statement on the 3rd of February saying that they regretted that what they said was a civilian weather balloon had unintentionally entered US airspace. But after it was shot down, the gloves were off and China returned to denouncing the US, condemning its actions and laterally now accusing the US of flying its own balloons into China, which the US categorically rejects. Here on the US side, I think the thing the balloon really did was just to translate this otherwise quite abstract sense of this idea of a threat from China into this tangible, concrete, 200 foot tall, I can't remember the metric conversion, I'm sorry, giant spy balloon floating over the US that Americans could look up and see. So that has really helped to make concrete the debate about China here. And that has really fueled what was already politics here is an understatement to say is very bitterly divided. Taking tough action against China is really the one thing I can think of that both Republicans and Democrats agree on. So the balloon is really catalyzing that debate and it's making it very difficult for people here who do want to pursue engagement with China, a nuanced response to China. It just makes that much harder when it's all taking place in this really febrile atmosphere of we need to get tougher on China. There is a chance that Blinken is going to meet Wang, his Chinese counterpart, at the Munich Security Conference this weekend, where I believe you, Megan, are going, so you can report back. And so I think it would be a very positive step if that does happen to resume high level contact, because I think the other thing to take from this and the sort of potentially worrying thing for the future is that the crisis communication setup has not worked. We saw the weekend the balloon was shot down, the US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin request a meeting with the Chinese Defense Minister Wei Fenghe and the Chinese side say, effectively, we'll get back to you. We'll let you know when our leadership is ready to talk. If they can't talk effectively after an incident like this, which doesn't involve any loss of life, thankfully, then if and when they face much more serious incidents, which are likely to happen, you know, we're expecting the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, to travel to Taiwan as soon as 
this spring, we know that there have already been a number of very close calls between US, Canadian and Australian aircraft and Chinese aircraft over the South China Sea. So when there is a more serious crisis, the response to this crisis doesn't suggest that it's going to be handled in a very reassuring way. So so it's important, even though domestic politics here is really counting against this currently, to make sure that effective crisis communications are in place, that the two sides are at least able to talk to each other in this sort of incident. So Katie, we're talking about the surge that we've seen in objects being spotted. Has anything like this ever happened in the past where something unidentified has come into a territory's airspace and been completely harmless, something that we would not want to shoot down. Yeah, so the incident that Megan is very kindly teeing up for us to talk about here is indeed a very serious incident in 2001, generally known as the EP3 incident, when a US surveillance aircraft was operating in what the US insists was international airspace over the South China Sea. China sent a fighter jet close to it. There was a collision and the uh, Chinese fighter jet was lost. The pilot was presumed to have died. And the American aircraft was forced to make an emergency landing in China on Hainan Island. So as it was approaching, Hainan was broadcasting an SOS, was doing everything it could to indicate an aircraft in distress that needed to make an emergency landing, but it received no communications from the Chinese side. So the US crew was able to make the landing on Hainan. Meanwhile, <laughs> I think axes, various uh, heavy pieces of equipment they could find were doing their best to destroy all of the surveillance equipment inside the plane so that the Chinese couldn't get hold of it. But they landed safely. They were held on Hainan Island for a number of days. But this incident, which was extraordinarily serious at the time, was able to be resolved when the US issued what's known as the letter of two sorries. Um, so George Bush, the president at the time, came had a form of words that avoided taking responsibility for the incident, which the US insisted was not its fault, but in saying that the US was very sorry for the loss of the Chinese pilot and that it was very sorry that the plane had entered China's airspace without verbal clearance. So they sort of managed this diplomatic hedge that avoided apologizing, but offered China enough of a face-saving way out. And the, the crew was returned to the US unharmed. The plane, less so, it, it came back in a, a lot of tiny boxes some, some time later. Just the difference to understand is that was at a time of very warming relations. That was at a time when China was preparing to join the World Trade Organization. And even then, it was difficult to resolve that incident. So I think what's troubling about this is just to imagine an incident like that, that does involve the, the loss of life, an accidental collision that, that escalates into this very serious incident. It's difficult to see now the circumstances in which a US president could say the word sorry to China and not be concerned about what happens during his next or their next campaign. So it's I think domestic politics on both sides are driving this sort of imperative for a very strong, tough demonstrations of, of resolve on, on both sides. But unfortunately, that means if you do get a real you know, genuine crisis, then it's, it would be much more difficult to manage in the current political environment. Thank you so much for that. And you've been following this really closely for us in print pieces for the New Statesman. So we'll link those in the show notes for our listeners to read. And now we're going to turn our attention to Turkey and Syria, where on the 6th of February, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake and its aftershocks devastated the southeast of Turkey and the northwest of Syria. 
At the time of recording, the death toll has now surpassed 41,000, as we call the disaster of the century. Turkish authorities' relief response has been poorly coordinated, with major delays. Ten days after the quake, there are still numerous areas waiting for aid. And there's a growing anger towards Turkish President Erdogan's government for those delays and the alleged corruption that has left regions of the country pockmarked with unsafe buildings. Meanwhile, in Syria, the earthquakes hit the most ra- the area most ravaged by the country's civil war and one of its last rebel-held territories. Initially, there was only one aid route open into the region. Assad has since allowed the UN to open two more aid routes, But international observers fear that Assad will attempt to use this disaster to reunite the country under his control. So, Ido, I know there's a ton to unpack with this disaster, but 10 days out from the earthquake, it's already clear that this disaster has really shaken Turkey's president, Erdogan. Yeah, this devastating quake seems to have led to a lot of criticism of Erdogan. Some seem to be now pinning the blame for the high death toll on building standards, which were either too lax or developers who had illegally built substandard buildings being essentially amnestied and their buildings allowed to stand. As a result, they were less secure than they should have been and more easily collapsed when the earthquake hit. And Erdogan took days to arrive and it wasn't seen by many survivors and many Turkish people as taking it as seriously and um, as much responsibility as he needed to. Yeah, I think, obviously, the timing is really poor for Erdogan. There's presidential elections in May, and in the 20 years that he's been in power, these are the elections where he seems, his grip on power seems the loosest. The opposition parties are rallying together to present a unified front against him. The economy's been just in in dire straits for the last five years, largely because many of his economic policies. So there's already a huge sense that he was in trouble. Now, with this devastating earthquake and a lot of really growing political, not even anger, I think you could say rage at him, he's obviously going to be quite worried. There's already some suggestions from him, from his party, that the elections could be pushed back to November or even March of next year. Obviously, the opposition parties have fought, are fighting this and said they know definitely want to have the election still in May. So it's a bit unclear exactly when that will happen. But I think it will be really hard for Erdogan to recover whatever kind of sense of control he still had over the country after this. Even in areas that haven't been absolutely devastated by this, there is a ton of anger. Now, quite ironically for Erdogan, his party, the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, came to power following a devastating earthquake in 1999 when that then government was seen to be very ill-prepared for it. And he, Erdogan's party made a pledge to the country that they would impose so many standards, prevent any kind of like tragedy like this from happening again, where, you know, Turkey is on a fault line. So earthquakes do happen. So since 1999, there's been an earthquake relief fund that (laughs) Turkish taxpayers have been paying into every year to aid relief for some kind of tragedy like this. They're supposed to be very stringent building standards that obviously have not been followed. There's the boom of construction that's happened, lots of it in the southeast where this earthquake hit. 
has seen a boom of construction, lots of developers that are close with Erdogan's party and have been widely known just to not follow rigorous building standards. And now we're seeing the actual fallout of that. So it, it is just really interesting that the very thing that propel, helped propel Erdogan to power could be his undoing. And that after literally decades now of his rule, he's just mismanaged the country so clearly. But Katie, I also wanted to bring you in here because it's not just Erdogan who is dealing with the political aftermath of the earthquake. So obviously the region that's been hit in Syria is a rebel-held area and in the past, even before the earthquake, there was only one route crossing over the border into this area that the UN could access. I wondered if you could come in here a little bit and talk about why there was only that one route and what Russia and China's role in that has been. So you would hope that there were some situations that are just so clearly humanitarian tragedies that it would provoke a response that is on the scale of this tragedy. And you might hope that normal sort of cynical geopolitics could be suspended in cases like these, and you would be wrong. What we have seen happen since the earthquake is these really urgent pleas from various parts of the UN, the Secretary General himself describing the need to open more border crossings as a very clear humanitarian case. The US ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, saying really urgently, right now, every hour matters. And yet the response from Russia, which is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, as is China, was that the single border crossing was sufficient. So I think this is just the latest example of what is really a pretty well-established pattern at this point of just the inability of the UN Security Council to respond to even what is clearly here, you know, a humanitarian disaster caused by a natural disaster caused by an earthquake. I should say that I believe Syria has since agreed to open two more crossings for humanitarian aid, but it's just this really clear and quite depressing example of what has now become, as I say, a pretty well-established pattern of the Security Council being unable to act and to agree even on these very clear-cut humanitarian issues. And lest it seem that we give Assad any credit, he did wait more than a week to allow right. the two routes open, and they are only open for the next three months. We should also say that even in the places where aid is being delivered, there are like widespread reports of Syrian soldiers stealing mm. aid and harassing mm. aid workers and things like that. So it's not as if he is now, Assad has now become a good guy and is doing what is necessary. Clearly, there are so many problems um, involved in the actual distribution of aid in regime-held areas. Yeah, I think it really goes to Katie's point as well, that we would like to imagine that in times of humanitarian disaster and natural disaster, that there would be some kind of humane response from even the most corrupt authoritarian or outright dictators. But that is obviously not the case. And we've seen political actions, past and present, really exacerbate what's already been just a devastating tragedy. So yeah, it's just an incredibly sad story. And I think the political fallout will continue for months, if not years after this. But we've, yeah, we've also run a couple of really good pieces on this. Eche Temelkraren, a friend of the podcast, a really excellent Turkish writer, she wrote a very good piece on Erdogan. We'll link to that in the show notes. And Lise Doucette has also written a dispatch on the ground. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman. 
in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Now it's time to hear from you with a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Sorry, I was on mute. You Ask Us. (laughs) A listener asks How stable is the situation in Russia? Conveniently, Ido has just written a very good piece on this. There is a lot of narratives among think tankers, among armchair experts about the future of Russia post-war and where we're all heading. You've written a very excellent piece about one such narrative. So I'm not saying that this is a super prevalent narrative and that this is being discussed by everyone, but it's not being discussed by no one. And Essentially, the argument I was getting a bit annoyed at, or the sort of narrative I was getting a bit annoyed at in this piece, was this idea that as Ukraine fights against Russia's 
nakedly imperialist ambitions, this kind of anti-colonial struggle was going to extend into Russia itself, because Russia, according to this view, is the last European empire. There are dozens of minorities who live within Russia, the Udmurts or the Buryats or the Chechens, um, various peoples of Dagestan sort of thing. And those people are captive of quasi-colonial state structure. And the war is, is somehow going to result in not only the expulsion of Russia from Ukraine, but the end of Russia itself, the end of the last empire this few has it. And like, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I don't think this is going to happen. And I think it is being discussed with sort of more seriousness than it deserves. And there are a couple of reasons that I think this. Um, the first is that people posit this as like the continuation of the collapse of the Soviet Union when one country became 15. And in the same way as 15 or at least 14 different peoples were able to liberate themselves from the Soviet yoke when the Soviet Union fell. Then there's several dozen more peoples who aren't currently, as this view has it, imprisoned within the structures of the Russian Federation will do the same. But this parallel is really very misleading. The main reason for that is that the republics of Russia don't have a right to secession like the Soviet republics did in theory. And literal books have been written on this, but Essentially, the 15 republics of the Soviet Union had a formal right to succeed, which they never used before the end of the 1980s because it was a formal right. And in reality, power was obviously centralized in center. But formally, because the Soviets had to say that the new state, which mapped very largely onto the border of the Russian Empire, was no longer an empire, but a voluntary union of different peoples who were happily getting along and marching towards this happy socialist future were all voluntarily joined, then they had to have the right to withdraw. And indeed, if you had looked at a map of the Soviet Union before the Soviet Union fell, you could clearly have seen where the borders of the new countries would be because there were 15 republics with the formal right to succeed. And indeed, one country became 15 along those borders um, with some subtleties, which I don't really have time to get into. But that internationally recognized countries were those 15. Now, by contrast, the republics of the of Russia do not have a similar right to secession. And although theoretically it's possible that some republics might choose to succeed in practice, even if they don't have the legal right, it would obviously be legally much messier. And that's why there was two wars in Chechnya in the 1990s, because Chechnya is legally part of the Russian Federation, but decided to secede. And Russia did not, did not allow that in the same way that it allowed Georgia, Ukraine, Uzbekistan to secede from the Soviet Union. I was wondering if you had any theories behind why this narrative is around at all. I think the reason this narrative is around is because people want to feel like they are, quote unquote, on the right side of history. I think it, it tees the idea that Russia is a kind of colonial empire that we can fight for the liberation of these dozens of peoples who are captive within Russia. It fits into a lot of the positive things that people in the West tell themselves about themselves, but it doesn't really map on to the reality. And more than that, I think it's a kind of comforting fiction because if you can tell yourself that Russia is going to dissolve and as a result, there is no longer going to be a country which is recognizably Russia, then we, the West, Ukraine, don't have to think about how to live next to Russia because Russia won't exist. And it will just be loads of different countries and maybe some of them will be hostile, but maybe some of them won't, but there'll be loads and loads of different countries and we won't have to think about how to exist next to Russia because Russia won't exist. And it's a kind of, I think, 
comforting fiction. And like none of this is to say necessarily that like that there aren't problems with the way that minorities are treated in Russia. There are plenty and plenty of examples of how badly minorities are treated in Russia. The autonomy that regions in federal subjects supposedly enjoy has been steadily eroded over the past 20 years, especially since Putin came to power. Minority languages, the kind of funding and the place for them has been steadily diminished. Minorities have been sent in disproportionate numbers to, to as part of soldier, soldiers to die in Ukraine or all these sorts of things. But from that to imagining that there are widespread independence movements in Russia is, I think, a stretch. Can I just add to Edo's excellent points? I think there is a parallel with the discourse around is Putin dying? There is this sort of desire to find a solution that I think leads to this sort of strain of thinking of wouldn't be wouldn't it be nice if this problem just magically disappeared? If Russia in its current form ceased to exist and Putin in his current form ceased to exist. But number one, that is not a basis for a strategy. And number two, that would just lead to a whole host of new, different problems. Yeah, I, I don't think it is as neat a solution as those who are pushing for it might suggest. I don't want to pretend that, it, that if you gave me a blank map of the world and you asked me to draw borders that mapped perfectly onto the distribution of different peoples in the world, that I or anyone else would draw a country called Russia in the exact same borders as Russia today. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't necessarily put Buryats together with Tatars, together with like Slavs in Moscow or wherever, Chelyabinsk or whatever. But equally, I probably wouldn't draw India or the UK, or I, I wouldn't give or French Guiana to France or China or like the reason there is an international order, which like the West has committed itself to defending, not least in Ukraine, that says that we don't change borders willy-nilly is because deciding that such and such an area should isn't rightfully part of such and such a, a sovereign state, if it's internationally recognized as such, is a bad way of organizing international relations. It was done quite a lot before the Second World War and during the Second World War, saying such and such of people aren't rightfully part of this sovereign state and this external power needs to fix this state of affairs. That's a bad way of organizing international relations. And we don't want to go back to that system. And if, you know, the minorities of Russia or any kind of particular republic in Russia feels that there is absolutely no option but secession should be an option open to them, but within the kind of constitutional framework, within some kind of, of legal arranged order. It's not for us as outsiders to go and point to a particular place in another sovereign state and say that is not rightfully part of that sovereign state because that is that way be monsters. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for a roundtable discussion on the one year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. I'll be joined by Jeremy Cliff, Maria Romanenko, and Mark Galliotti for a discussion about the year that changed everything for Ukraine and the world. If you're a regular World Review listener and haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a very good review. It really does help. Our producer today has been Maeve Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.